Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. Today on KUNC's Colorado Edition. Four of the five largest known wildfires in Colorado have happened just in the last three years, according to data from the state's Division of Fire Prevention and Control. And two of the most recent fires have been in Boulder County, where thousands of residents have been forced to pack up whatever belongings they can quickly before having to evacuate. No matter how many times a community goes through this, when it happens, it's still a shock to your system and you still have to think on your feet in a way that, you know, you're just blindsided by. I'll talk with reporter Jesse Gray, who spoke with Boulder residents during the NCAR fire, about how they're coping with the frequent looming threat of wildfires. And later, Colorado is rolling out several new gun laws this year, including a new government agency dedicated to stopping shootings. Our state capitol reporter looks at the progress on gun reform a year after the shooting at a Boulder supermarket that killed 10 people. Today is Friday, April 1st. I'm Erin O'Toole, and this is Colorado Edition from KUNC. It's been just about one week since the NCAR fire ignited in Boulder County near the National Center for Atmospheric Research. About 19,000 people living in nearby homes had to quickly evacuate during the peak of the fire last Saturday. That blaze came just three months after Colorado's most destructive wildfire, the Marshall Fire, which destroyed more than 1,000 homes in the communities of Superior and Louisville. And many weary residents are wondering if a year-round fire season is now the new normal. Jesse Gray has been covering these fires and more as a journalist and managing editor of the Boulder Reporting Lab. That's a nonprofit independent digital newsroom in Boulder. But this past weekend, he also found himself in the story, with the NCAR fire threatening his neighborhood. He was one of the people who had to quickly get out. He spent time talking to fellow evacuees while a colleague went into the evacuation zone to talk with those who stayed behind. Their reporting was published this week. And Jesse joins me now to talk about his experience and the emotional impact that these frequent fire events are having on people. Jesse, welcome to Colorado Edition. Hi, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Now, as I mentioned, you were among those 19,000 people who had to evacuate last Saturday. Not how you imagined your weekend was going to go, I suspect. Could you describe your experience? Sure. Yeah. My my wife and I um, had gone down to the shops at Table Mesa earlier that morning. We live in the Devil's Thumb neighborhood um, near where the wildfire broke out um, close to NCAR. We're about a quarter mile from, from NCAR. Uh, we, had, we were on foot. We went down to do some grocery shopping, uh, to grab some brunch. Uh, this was maybe just a little bit before noon. Uh, we stopped to get some ice cream. We're walking back to our house. Um, earlier that afternoon, we, at which point we had begun to see some smoke in the distance near our neighborhood. Um, as we got closer to that plume of smoke, uh, it sort of became clearer uh, based on the reactions we were seeing from, from our neighbors who were on their porches watching, watching the action that something was afoot. 
And, and my wife told me this, this phrase that's sort of been ringing through my head ever since she was like, I'm going to feel so stupid if I get up there eating this ice cream cone and our house is on fire. Uh, and, and sort of the, the, the irony built into that, um, I think has been um, something that's, that's been on, on my mind as, um, as, as I, as a journalist, cover these destructive wildfires that have been happening in Boulder, a place that's so beautiful and blissful um, that nonetheless is so vulnerable to, to these really gruesome natural disasters that, um, you know, are happening more frequently um, and, you know, are unfortunately, um, as we saw with the Marshall Fire, uh, in some cases, you know, quite destructive uh, to, to lives and property. Yeah. Now, you described that experience of evacuating in your newsletter on Monday, which is headlined Fire After Fire After Fire, which I think just perfectly encapsulates how a lot of residents are feeling right now. Yeah. And, and you know, and I think it's it's also worth pointing out, you know, we have the, the sort of the marquee wildfire, the Marshall Fire, um, you know, kicking off the, the new year in Boulder, right? Um, the sort of grim harbinger of, of, uh, of these kind of, these natural disasters that are caused by, um, or in part by intensifying climate change. Um, but on top of that, Boulder has also suffered from a number of um, pretty awful apartment fires over the last few months. There was the Whittier fire in October, um, and then actually on Friday morning, the day before the NCAR fire, uh, there was an apartment fire at the Magwood Apartments in North Boulder, um, where a, a number of residents were displaced from that. And I was actually on the phone that morning um, with someone who had evacuated from, from the Magwood fire. Um, and so, you know, less than 24 hours after speaking to uh, someone who had to evacuate their own home you know, in the face of an apartment blaze, you know, I found myself in, in a very similar situation the next day. So, yeah, like you said, not how I was expecting to spend my Saturday. And it, it really did just feel like, you know, um, like I said, fire after fire after fire. We keep being reminded of how vulnerable uh, we are in this community whether that's from a wildfire getting out of control or whether that's from you know, uh, a structure fire happening for other reasons, um, our community has just sort of been reeling from, from these kinds of disasters. And you spent time at an evacuation center where a lot of people were. I mean, what was that like? You know, here you are a journalist normally reporting on these things, maybe going into the fire area. What was it like to be evacuated from the fire? Yeah, I mean, as you sort of key into there with your question, you know, there, there's kind of a strange um, bifurcation that, that, you know, that I was sort of experiencing, you know, as, as a journalist um, who's, who's covering this event, um, but also as a resident of, you know, an evacuated neighborhood who, you know, didn't know where else to go other than the community center. Um, and so, you know, I was, I was wearing a couple hats as a displaced, you know, evacuee um, and as a journalist who had a job to do. Um, and so, you know, when I would approach people to, to, to see if they wanted to talk to me, you know, I, I, I found myself telling them, you know, I'm speaking to you as 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 a journalist, right? Um, but also as your neighbor, and and I think that that helped people feel more comfortable sharing their story with me. Um, you know, with with someone who's going through it alongside them, 
you know, rather than someone who's just sort of helicoptering into to a disaster and, you know, trying to extract stories from it. You know, I had an experience to share with them um, as they shared theirs with me uh, that I think, you know, made for some, some really rich conversations, you know, among my neighbors, which, which I was grateful for as a journalist, but also, you know, um, as, as a member of this community, it made me feel more connected to my neighbors. You and your colleague, John Herrick, uh, spoke with a lot of people impacted by the NCAR fire. And I want to ask about what you heard from them in a moment. But let me ask you first about how you went about reporting this story. Yeah. So um, really early on, um, as the event was unfolding, you know, I, I began you know, texting with, with John Herrick, our, our reporter, um, and, you know, I told him w- what was going on at our house. We were leaving, we were grabbing our stuff. Um, at that point, you know, the, the community center had not been established as an evacuation point. So I just, I didn't know where we were going. I just knew that we were getting out. Um, and at the same time, um, as, as, as my wife and I are leaving the evacuation zone, John is going into the evacuation zone um, to to get a read on the situation, to see who he can speak with. Um, And then as as I got my bearings and as the East Boulder Community Center opened up as the evacuation point for residents, um, you know, I knew that that our trip to that community center, you know, would not only be um, a place for my wife and I to collect ourselves and um, and, and figure out our plan for uh, that night. Um, but I also knew that that would be um, a site where I would be collecting stories of, of people who were displaced by this event. Um, at that moment, you know, you know, John and I had, you know, we'd been texting, we had a phone call. Um, we didn't have a, um, a really specific game plan at that point, uh, other than listening to people um, and collecting s- their stories. Um, and, you know, we said, let's just um, talk to the folks who are impacted by this. Um, what are their concerns? What are their stories? What happened to them? What are they going through? Um, and then we can uh, put our heads together and figure out how we want to package a story for readers. And so it became clear as as these two different um, as these two different poles kind of set up, you know, the evacuation zone versus the evacuation point. Um, you know, it sort of became clear that we had two different strands of uh, of experience that we could each report on. So so John handled, um, talking to the people who stayed behind um, and, and sort of kind of getting in their heads what was going through it and 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 what they were thinking. Um, and then I had the other experience of talking to the people who fled um, and and sort of watching the watching things sort of unfold from afar. Um, and so we we found pretty quickly that we had these two different strands of experience that added up to a to a whole. Um, that told the story of what happened on that Saturday. And so what we eventually did was combine these two dispatches um, and and give folks the the view on the ground 
from both the evacuation zone and the evacuation point um, while packaging that into a news article that, that told people, you know, here's, here's the fire of the footprint, here's what's been contained, here's, you know, how it was contained. So, you know, that is a big part of how we tell stories at the Boulder Reporting Lab is not just to give people the who, what, when, why um, of, of an event, but to bring people um, voices from that event that help uh, illuminate its stakes for, for readers. And it seems like there are a few common threads that you found among the people that you spoke with. What was the general sense from the people who either fled the fire or stayed behind? They're tired. You know, um, they're weary. This is not, um, for, for most folks who are, who are fleeing this fire on Saturday and for the folks who stay behind, this is not the first time they've had an experience like this. Um, the obvious marquee event is the Marshall Fire on December 30 of last year, um, which, as we know, was the most destructive wildfire in Colorado history, destroyed over a thousand homes, upended even more lives. Um, and so, you know, I think both John and I, through our interviews on Saturday, um, just found that we were talking to a lot of really tired people um, who, um, for whom this was you know, becoming a, a new normal. You even wrote about one woman who had to do this for the September 2013 floods that devastated many parts of the Front Range, including in Boulder County. Um, it sounds like she's had a lot of experience having to, to pack up quickly and get out. Yeah, yeah. And she, uh, her son came up from Denver uh, to, to help her pack. Um, but yeah, she had had lived through the 2013 flood and, um, you know, was also close to uh, the fire on the other side of Bear Peak in, in 2012. Um, and so, you know, that's all within the last decade, right? Um, and, and even then, you know, she sort of finds herself in this, uh, this strange experience of, you know, having to ask herself, like, what matters to me in this moment? How, you know, what do I take with me? Um, and I think her story really shows that no matter how many times a community goes through this, you know, um, when it happens, it's still a shock to your system. And you still have to think on your feet in a way that, you know, you're just um, blindsided by. One of the people you spoke with called this a wake-up call. And this makes me wonder if this is where some of this exhaustion is coming from. Not only that sense of dread when people see a plume of smoke nearby, but also the way that finding solutions to climate change, which factor into these intense fires, uh, finding solutions just doesn't seem to get any real traction. Yeah, I think you're right. Um that resident that you're you're talking about here was someone I spoke with at the uh, community center who had evacuated from the fire. Uh, this was not her first evacuation, and she made sure, you know, in in our conversation um, to highlight that um, that the climate change angle on all of this, you know, which is um, there is a weariness coursing around uh, these sort of climate disasters, because as you say, the, the, the solutions are kind of eluding us, right? Um, and I think it's a big piece of that is that, you know, climate change isn't the only part of these stories, these wildfires, it, it, but it's forcing us to expand our imagination 
of what these events can do um, and how frequently they can happen. And so, you know, I think that the weariness of the inaction on climate change uh, really dovetails with the weariness of just having to pack up your life and evacuate on a moment's notice because they're so related. As these events, these disasters, these tragedies um, become a bigger fixture in our lives, we're all going to find ourselves, many of us are going to find ourselves in, uh, in positions just like the folks we talked to on Saturday who, who have to, in a split second, make a decision on what matters the most in their lives that they can pack into their car um, and, and drive to safety. Jesse Gray is the managing editor of the Boulder Reporting Lab, a nonprofit independent news organization in Boulder. You'll find a link to their recent reporting on the fires at our website, KUNC.org. Jesse, thanks so much for joining me today. It's great speaking with you, Aaron. Thanks so much. There were loud calls for gun reform in Colorado after a mass shooting at a Boulder supermarket last year. Lawmakers have delivered on some of those requests, but other new laws are still in the works a year after the shooting. KUNC's Scott Franz has more on the city's ongoing recovery from the tragedy, as well as some new efforts launching this year to tackle gun violence. When we are lost and sick at heart, we remember them. Dozens of people gathered in a small park in downtown Boulder last week to listen to the tributes to the victims. The signs and posters demanding bans on assault weapons that residents displayed in the first days after the shooting were gone. Instead, Governor Jared Polis talked about Boulder's resiliency, and County Commissioner Claire Levy was the only speaker to mention gun control. We will not allow our community to be so awash with guns that in a moment of heated passion or despair, the unthinkable happens that cannot be undone. The fence around the supermarket has come down and shoppers are returning, but the shock of the shooting still has not faded from this city at the edge of the Flatirons, and neither has the resolve from some lawmakers to stop another one. Last year, they passed three bills in response. One is preventing people who commit assaults and other misdemeanors from buying guns. Another will soon let Boulder and other cities pass tougher gun laws than the state has in place. We are planning to readopt our assault weapons ban that was struck down some seven to 10 days prior to the mass shooting in, in sort of a, an extra tragic twist of fate. Rachel Friend serves on the city council. We're looking at open carry and ghost guns and waiting periods. And, and carrying in sensitive areas such as museums and, and city buildings and places like that. Friend says they are also looking to work regionally. The state government still hasn't gone far enough to address gun violence after several mass shootings in the state, she says. So Boulder is recruiting other cities and towns along the Front Range to join its effort. Friend says the Boulder Council and other cities are likely to pass an assault weapons ban as soon as this summer. There's a lot of holes if we're not acting regionally. The state also is busy rolling out a third law that was passed in response to the shooting. The state health department is hiring workers to run the brand new Office of Gun Violence Prevention. Dr. Eric France is Colorado's chief medical officer. When he's not busy helping guide the state through the pandemic, He's been getting the new office up and running. And my desire as a gun owner, hunter, 
and public health specialist is to be sure that we can talk to all people of Colorado to reduce gun violence. Dr. France says the office is interviewing finalists for its first director. It is also opening with about $3 million to spend on public education campaigns and other initiatives. We'll provide some funds to uh, communities where there have been a cycle of violence and um, help them think through what are the right evidence-informed interventions that might work and what can we learn from those. France says another top priority is to publicize the state's red flag law, which allows judges to temporarily take guns away from people who pose a risk to others. Senate President Steve Finberg, a Boulder Democrat, led the legislature's response to the shooting last year. He says the new Gun Violence Prevention Office will likely be the most impactful thing the state will do in response to the shooting. This is a bill that is actually charged with thinking about gun violence as a public health concern. And in a state where some lawmakers have lost their jobs for supporting gun control measures like banning high-capacity magazines, Finberg says he's starting to sense a shift toward embracing new restrictions. As proof, he points to the relative lack of debate over a bill he and other Democrats passed recently to ban guns at polling places. I I think people recognize that there are places where people should feel safe, and some people don't feel safe when they're exposed, you know, carrying of firearms. Finberg says a mental health spending package worth about $600 million that is advancing this session will also help reduce gun violence. I'm Scott Franz at the State Capitol. And we have one other very important piece of news today. Governor Jared Polis announced that he will begin training to serve as a cliff diver when the iconic Casa Bonita reopens. A press release says the governor has begun training to cliff dive with renowned Olympic athletes at the U.S. Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs. He is expected to begin diving next year. We should also note that this announcement comes on April 1st, so... Maybe we should be a little little suspicious of this. I don't know. I'd still like to see it. No fooling around, though. We have made it to the weekend, and there's lots going on around northern Colorado. If a Friday night musical performance fits your mood, CU Denver's College of Arts and Media is presenting Guitar Night featuring world-renowned guitarist Pierre Bensoussan, whose music we're hearing right now. And in Fort Collins, the Act Human Rights Film Festival opened yesterday and continues in person through the weekend. The festival features screenings and discussions of thought-provoking documentary films happening at the Lurie Student Center at Colorado State University and at the Lyric. You'll find more information about these events in today's show notes and at KUNC.org. That's it for today's Colorado edition. Thank you so much for listening. If you're not already subscribed to the podcast, sign up so you never miss an episode. We'll be back next week with more news from around Northern Colorado. Our executive producer is Sean Corcoran. Digital editing is handled by Ashley Jeffcoat and Jackie High. And I'm your host, Erin O'Toole. I hope you have a great weekend.